a listener production. We are recording this episode uh, here in Australia before our Paralympic athletes head overseas to Tokyo to represent our country. Dylan Alcott, a Paralympian, a gold medalist in two different sports himself. G'day, mate. Angus O'Loughlin. How are you, my brother? Very well. We are doing a very socially distanced Listen, Abel, uh, you are at your house using some radio equipment. I'm at the studio, but we're managing to make this work. Yeah, I'm currently in a bubble within a bubble, so we're not allowed to go out to anywhere, obviously leading into the Tokyo Games and especially to dirty, dirty people like you. So, hmm. you know, you had to try and distance myself. <laughs> uh, can we, we're going to speak to um, Paralympians over the next couple of weeks uh, while the Paralympics are on, but let's talk about your preparation as well because we're going to have obviously guests on talking about their experiences as Paralympians and, and future athletes. But what about you? What does your Tokyo preparation look for and what are you going to be competing in over there? Yeah, wheelchair tennis this time around for me. One thing that I'm, you know, it's obviously been tough for everybody in this world to be living in the current climate. And in, in particular, it's been hard for us athletes, you know, getting ready. Things keep changing. Obviously got to keep a low profile so we aren't in any tier one or tier two locations or, or even get COVID ourselves. Luckily, we're all vaxxed and stuff like that. But, you know, I love the Paralympics, mate. It's it's the two weeks where people with a disability rule the world, you know what I mean? And we always like, you know, profiling people with or affected by disability on this podcast. And, and I think the Paralympics is a really great beacon to show what people with disability can really do. Not only their stories, but also show how elite elite they can be as athletes. That's what I love. It's about, I mean, it is about competition. It is about thriving, but it is also changing perceptions all around the world, you know, of what people might have towards people with disability. So it's my favorite event ever, mate. So I'm very excited for it. So you're obviously, you know, protecting yourself health-wise and making sure that you stay very close to your own bubble so that it can be no way that you don't go to the games. But let's talk about the temperature difference, something we were speaking about off the air before because it's uh, nine degrees in Victoria where you live and you're heading into what kind of climate over in Tokyo? Oh, it's just a balmy 38 degrees there today and I think 75% humidity. So I've actually been doing – I was really lucky I got – given this little sauna system. So I've been having a sauna in my backyard trying to get ready to the heat. But, you know, we're going to go into a heat chamber and do some boxing and some like time on the on the hand crank, which is like a bike that you use with your hands. But still, the plan was to go to Cairns and, or Darwin to get ready, but that's off the table at the moment because of border restrictions and stuff like that. But beggars can't be choosers. We're still lucky that we're going and, you know, credit to the Japanese for getting through the Olympics and... Now it's time for the main event to start. Now they've done the warm-up, and I think everyone's pretty pumped for it. Uh, It is super exciting. I can't wait to sit my butt on the couch and and watch you guys do all the effort. Now, from one Paralympian, Dylan Alcott, a gold medalist already, let's catch up with this Paralympian. I'm Madison. Um, I've been to to three games. I'm a wheelchair racer, um, mostly longer distances now. Um, I did get through my first few games as a sprinter and then switched to long stuff, primarily marathons immediately after. So, yeah, going into Tokyo's fourth games, it's my first time trying to do like a full program. So three events on the track plus the marathon on the closing ceremony day. So we'll see how that goes. I just don't understand as an athlete how you can have such varied range and and skill sets to be able to go from 800 to, to a marathon is ridiculous. So hats off to you. Yeah, I feel like the wheelchair racing is kind of similar to swimming in that regard. Once you have the skill set down, it actually translates quite well across many 
Having said that, I feel like I grew up in this sport watching so many of my teammates do all those four events. And I was like, yeah, this is what you do. And now that it's my turn to do it, I'm like, is this what we do though? Do you have to do this? <laughs> we'll get into how you train for them all and stuff um, in a minute. But before we do, what, what is your disability? You start every one of these with this question. Yeah, we do. Can I ask you why? Oh, I like this. So I want to know this because this is a good place to say. Do you identify for disability, like identity first or person first? Definitely person first when it comes to disability as a broad disability conversation. If we're becoming more specific, like say someone's a wheelchair user or if we're getting more specific, I think it's fine. I think that person first language is important when we're talking broad. So I think I think the argument against it that I've heard is that we don't use person-first language for nearly any other descriptor. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about the blonde woman, we wouldn't say the woman who's blonde, we'd say the blonde. Correct. Where I think with that, though, it's so specific. We know going in, we're talking about hair colour. We're not talking about that person in their entirety. We're talking about one specific feature and there is enough social context already for us to know exactly what that is. Whereas I don't believe we have that with disability and it does... Two things. One is it paints all disabilities the same, which is an incredibly huge problem that I think we're all constantly having to battle as people with disabilities. Second, I think we often get our entire identity wrapped up in disability already. Like that's a big thing that happens the minute you have any kind of disability. The minute anyone knows that, sees that, that becomes your entire identity. So when you say you are a disabled person, it wraps your entire identity up in that one identifier. And I find that a little bit, that's one of the biggest challenges we face. And if we can step away from that just in the language that we use, that's such a huge first step. There's so many more steps after that. But, yes, I do believe in first-person language when it comes to the broader term disability. I told you she was good, Gus. Going to get straight in there. Do you, are you, I'm going to ask you, Gus, as an able-bodied person, so are you fully across the idea of um, person-first language and as opposed to identity? For me, it's a tricky subject I've, every time we have an interview, I feel nervous because I want to do the interview justice to everyone listening and to the person who's the guest, of course. But it's also interesting because we've had people who identify with their disability first deliberately. So they want to be known for the disability. Mm-hmm. And then we have people like yourself, Mads, who are very happy to talk about themselves before we get into why you're in a chair, for example. The, the, it's a little bit of the eggshell moment for me in interviews because I don't know which way that's going to go. But I also love hearing stuff like that and I think it's really interesting and informative so grateful for it. When did you feel like start finding your feet to want to talk about stuff like this in that way you know what I mean like people might call you and I advocates but we're not going out there to be advocates we're just being ourselves you know what I mean but when did you I guess feel the confidence to speak up and be confident about talking about disability in such a broad great lens? When I realised how few voices there were in that conversation so I definitely avoided it for the longest time I was almost resentful that every Paralympian that I saw coming through the sport ended up in some kind of advocacy space. Like every conversation trended towards disability, even though that was not how that person wanted to identify necessarily. It became this responsibility that we all had to take on that not a single one of us asked for. And so I think I went through like the first five years of my career just not wanting to do it and shying really hard away from it. But the reality is, is sport creates one of the biggest platforms for people with disabilities. And there's not that many of us in the sport that have big enough platforms to have a voice. And we could, both of us could probably name who all of them are. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate because it means that an entire community is being represented in the way you speak and your words. And people are 
people without disabilities are creating their entire idea of, of, of how to treat 20% of our community based on our words. And that's a huge responsibility. And I think I, I saw it being done, started to realize that my platform was growing and that I do have a responsibility to do that because my life and my opportunities and the way I'm treated by people around me and how I choose to be treated has been, I've been able to develop that and grow that because of people who, like Louise, for example, who who use her platform to create that space. And I'm a product of that space that she created. And so it kind of becomes our responsibility to continue doing that. Who's Louise? I know who Louise is, but who's Louise? Louise Savage, sorry. Louise Savage. Okay, Nine-time gold medal winning. So she is your coach, mentor still going on? Yeah. Anyone listening who doesn't know Louise Savage, you're missing out. She's a star. Um, and like she was probably the first... I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I, at least for our age bracket, Mads, we're around the same age. She was the first Paralympian who really cut through in the mainstream after the Sydney Olympics and Paralympics because she competed at both because they had an event. Right? I, I remember seeing on Rove Live. If you were on Rove Live, hmm. Hmm. You, you made it. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how, when did you first connect with her? Same as you in that Lou was the only – really person that looked like me that I saw growing up. I think we both had the luxury of growing up like after 2000. So we had a Paralympian as a household name growing up, which is, you know, I don't think we realized that that wasn't the case beforehand necessarily. So I connected Lou. Lou was coming back to to Perth for a wedding and I had gotten into water racing already in like a, you know, casual way. And basically she was told to come to the track and have a look and see, you know, I think someone saw potential in me. And so she actually came out to the track, took time out of her, her trip home to, to come and see me push. And um, she basically encouraged me to come to my first water racing um, comp. It's here in Sydney and Canberra. It's the Summer Under Series, which um, we do every single year through the summer. And at first I was incredibly hesitant. I didn't think that sport was necessarily going to be my future at that point. Um, it was just something that I was, I was doing, but Lou is incredibly persuasive. Um, it's very hard <laughs> to say no to Louise Savage. When yes, correct. Something. So my mum and I went over and I absolutely fell in love with the sport, um, you know, over the course of a week, basically. And, and not just the sport, but by like these incredible people that I got to be surrounded by in this world that I hadn't even known existed up to that point. So I came home after that and I think maybe a couple months in, Lou gave me a call and asked if I wanted to start working together. And that's obviously not something that you say no to. So Lou and I have been working together. This is, yeah, our fourth games together. i got to ask, because obviously when lockdown happened back in 2020, I couldn't play tennis. So I went full track mode and I started pushing on the road in my old basketball chair and doing like sprints around a track. Angus, Angus, and I work on radio, he decided to run a marathon after radio one day for no reason, right? Yeah, how far did you get, Gus? 28, I think. 28 Ks, no training, <laughs> right? Why would you pick track, Mats? Because they it <laughs> sucks. Okay. It is so hard. So here's the thing. I I I love the track. I love that it was I love that it was independent. I love that everything that you put in, you got back out right away. I love that I can see, you know, my speeds, my heart rate, all my numbers right there in front of me. It's very um tangible, I guess. Like it's all right there and you can see your progression. When I discovered that I was inclined towards longer distances, there was a moment there where I was like, what am I doing? This is an entirely different world. So I, I sprinted in Beijing and London and the last time I raced 100 or 200 was the finals in, in 2012. And I raced my first marathon 
by the middle of the next year. And I think all that happened very quickly. I didn't really take time to think about it. And I think it was when I was in London getting ready for my first marathon, I was like, how did this happen? How do I find out this was my skill set? And so, yeah, that was definitely the progression there. But I, I do love the training and I, I, I love the marathon for entirely different reasons. But yeah, it is different. And speaking of the lockdown, obviously a lot has changed. Like Dylan said, he wasn't allowed to go and play tennis. So he had to kind of, you know, find a new way to keep fit. Doing my research on you, Mads, I've seen a lot of your patio, which is behind you on the Zoom. Uh, how did you stay motivated, you know, keeping the wheels literally turning over? It was, it was really strange. I think it was confronting for a lot of us. It was definitely was for me because I think I've always prided myself on being someone who, you know, can motivate herself like intrinsically, get the job done. And then I realized without having to meet someone for training, being held accountable for my times, I'm not actually that person. <laughs> I will I will train every day, but I won't do the time that I'm meant to. My whole day, I will get nothing done. I will procrastinate my one training session for like six hours if you let me. So that was a confronting realization. So I think it was just creating like, basically just new methods, like new ways to, to work at what you needed. And I think it also created this, like, I guess, problem solving approach to stuff. And I think we can carry so much of that forward. Like I definitely learned a lot about myself during that without having, without being able to rely on the performance team that I usually have around me, which is significant. So I think that, yeah, it was definitely tricky, but also you don't really have a choice, right? Like this is, at the end of the day, it, it's just our job, like as much as this anything else, you kind of get it done. I just, Definitely didn't do it probably the way that I was meant to for that first month of lockdown. A question for you both as athletes heading into this Paralympics. Dylan, I was with you when we found out the Olympics was cancelled because of COVID. We were on air that day when the official statement came through from the IOC. How did you both... Do you remember who said it? Do you remember? Who, do you oh, remember yes, Dick something. Who said it? Dick Pound. <laughs> yeah, we made <laughs> so news. many jokes on that about <laughs> Dick Pound. <laughs> that was the one shining light. Um, with that uncertainty of the games even going ahead did you stay training the whole way through uh, both of you like going into it or did you just put the, the tennis racket and the chair down for a bit and go well I'm not going to train with no date inside or certainty around it my team offered me um time off basically asked if I wanted to now would be the time to take it that there wouldn't be an opportunity for this kind of time off after this year at all like this was not something that's going to come around again. Um, and I said no to it. I think the idea of not having that structure, not having that purpose was really confronting. But I definitely didn't train with the intensity that I always do. I definitely gave myself like a little more leeway in what I was doing, um, which was nice. It was nice to just feel like I was training, just stay fit and healthy without that pressure that 2020 started with. So it was, it was a different kind of, of training and I was definitely given a little bit more, I guess, movement in that space. It wasn't as regimented as it always is. But I, yeah, I, um, I don't think I would have wanted to be in my head if I wasn't also training every day. I trained throughout. I tell you what I did poorly. I didn't admit that I was struggling. Like I acted cool. Like, you know, I was like, I'll be right. Like, or whatever. We can't control it. I'll be fine. And I was like, it actually was devastating news. And that's okay to say I'm devastated. Right, but I was probably trying to be too much of a bit of a stoic legend, and it reflected on my the way that I was acting around my friends and family, and and then I realised, and I was like, I think it's okay to say, it's still upsetting that my life goal might now be over, and you know, I probably this potentially could be my last Paralympics if this wasn't on, I don't have a end, you know, a swan song to go. So, I think 
physically I was there, but mentally I probably was struggling a bit. And um, it's been a nice refresher actually this year. And watching the Olympics as well has been pretty cool because I've got the juice now. Like I've really got the juice and really excited to to get over there and, and seeing all the athletes compete. And have you felt the same? Oh my God, absolutely. I think it was mentally incredibly challenging. I think our whole lives exist in these four-year cycles and to have that structure taken away, all those think you base your life and the goals that you set and to suddenly have none of that, I think really through. I think I did what you did. I was like, this is totally fine when it was not fine. Um, But yeah, I think watching the Olympics go ahead kind of made it really real. Like I think so many of us up until the Olympics started, were like it could still get cancelled, right? Like I think things have changed so last minute, so many times. It is so hard to really know. And I didn't I don't think I wanted to let myself believe it was going to go ahead until it was going ahead. So I think to, to see that and to see like the enormous success of it, how much buy-in there was back home, but in Japan as well. And the experiences from the athletes as well, to kind of see all of that, I think is really kind of, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to the 24th. Now I watched the um, Peter Bowl run the 800. There is some serious argy-bargy going on, like elbows and like fighting for position. Is the wheelchair track, the same vibe? Oh, like, is there crashes? It's so messy. It's so messy. And when it goes bad, it goes really bad. I've been lucky. I have not been involved in a crash in a race. I've been in races where crashes have happened, but I've managed to not be anywhere near them. But I remember my first Paralympics, our first Paralympics in Beijing, I think the 5,000 had an enormous crash in the women's wheelchair race. And I think that was my first, like, introduction to what wheelchair racing was, and that has, like, stayed with me hmm. for years so yes there definitely is i think the women probably race a little nicer and leave a little more space than the men do there's definitely far more crashes on the men's side (laughs) but yes it is pushy i actually watched your 5000 meter victory in london at the para world championships a couple of years ago and there seemed to be uh, quite a lot of camaraderie between you and the other athletes as well like i I watched as you kind of doing you know, a, a forced victory lap by just slowing down. That you know, you had everyone else coming over to you and like <laughs> shaking your hands and and you know saying congratulations. The American team. There's there's definitely a lot of respect in what we do. I think that when you're lining up at a Paralympic Games at a World Championships, you know that every single one of those women has done the exact same work that you've done, and so it's hard to not respect everyone that's lining up there beside you. And any one of those races on any day, it could be any one of ours. And so it, that makes, I think, so easy to respect every athlete around you. And you kind of, you do share that. I think when you're on the track, when you're actually moving, yes, it's competitive, it's messy. You don't have like the fondest emotions for the people like beside you. But the minute it's done, it's done. And, and these are the women that, you know, I see nearly every month on the marathon circuit. And when a real chasing qualifies throughout the year, you do help everyone to try and to try and do that together and then just kind of let it go at the end of the race. And, you know, you you do work together. And so I think it's hard to just switch that off at a game. So, yeah, there definitely is. There's a huge amount of sport, I think, in our sport. In our sport. What's that feeling like when you get to the Paralympic Village? Because for me, you know people with disability, but you don't see disability in that sense, you know what I mean? So what was that feeling for you the first time you rolled in there? Good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um... I think at first you're kind of viewing it as looking at it and, and it feels unfamiliar because you've never been in a space with, with that many people with disabilities before. Like the part that got me more was how little interest everyone had in mine. And that was, you know, one of the first times I had seen that. And I think it's a shock when you first do enter the village and you see the many people with disabilities, but then it's 
Also interesting to note how quickly that shock wears off and how little interest you then have in it. And I think that that's basically what you want, right? That's what you want in, in, in all communities everywhere is how little interest we have in everyone else's disability to kind of become the norm. You want the 80% to adopt that kind of thinking that we haven't. And the Paralympic Village is a really deep end way to kind of have that experience. But I think that initial not being that lack of familiarity with it lasts maybe 48 hours at a stretch. And that's what you want. When I was, when we're getting you on the podcast, like we've known each other since we were 17 and 14. I have no idea what your disability is. <laughs> I have no idea. Did you know that? Right, I've got a piece of paper here that's telling me, and I'm going, oh, it's the same as my doubles partner, Heath. Heath I had yeah. no idea. Is it <laughs> Because we don't care. Like, and you, you know, I play a tennis match against someone and someone goes, oh, what's their disability? And I go, I, got, I don't know. No, I- like, I don't, I don't know. And when you said it like that, it's so true because you're in awe of seeing so many incredible people with disability doing amazing things when you get there. But then you're just like, actually, what sport do they do? Or how do they compete? Or what are they elite at? Or whatever it is. And when you break it down like that, it made me think, yeah, I didn't even know why you are in, in a wheelchair the same way that you probably don't even know why I'm in a wheelchair, I would, you know? I wouldn't know half my teammates. I wouldn't know. I don't think I've ever asked. Unless someone has like an incredibly interesting story and then it's like you can't need to know. Yes. Um, but that's it. That's that's about where it ends. Yeah. Yeah, one of my one of my opponents said he got was train surfing and fell off a train and got his legs run over. And then I read a newspaper article and it was not true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watching the Olympics in particular, for me personally, watching Paddy Mills and the Boomers, you could see how much wearing the green and gold meant to him personally and the team. Can you identify the difference you feel for representing your country and people with disability? What a question. It's definitely different racing wearing the green and gold than it is racing any other time, competing any other time. I think you're, I think you're so aware of how much is behind that and how much history is in that as well. And you can't not recognise that you're where you are because of a whole family of people that that came before us. And, and you can't get away from that when you're in the uniform. We don't want to get away from it. You know that there's just so much to it. And it kind of, it's a privilege and it's a responsibility to wear it. And that becomes the best possible feeling. I think in terms of representing disability that's an, an enormous responsibility and I, and I think one of the things I love so much about our Paralympic family is, is how seriously I think every single one of us takes that I think we we're aware of what that world can look like and the direction we want it to go and I think we all have such different experiences in our in our personal lives in our childhoods and in all of that and where you know there's so much overlap but so many different stories as well and I think that what that results in is every single one of us knowing how that could potentially look and trying to do our part for it. And that's, I think, one of the things that I, I really do love so much and why it's such a privilege to be a part of our Paralympic team, our Paralympic family, because you're surrounded by, by this incredible group of people who, who are trying to do more than just sport. I think sport is so important. The impact that it has is, is enormous, but it has such an enormous impact on communities because people relate to it so much. I think whether you're an athlete, an admin, just a spectator, you you buy into sport. I think particularly in Australia, it's such a huge part of our culture. And so communities are impacted when we see live sport happening. And I think that, you know, people with disabilities, there are so many of us and we're so incredibly underrepresented. And every single one of us out there in 
Tokyo wearing the green and gold recognizes that and knows the impact that we are having back home. And it was one of my biggest concerns when the postponement was uh, maybe a cancellation. And obviously I was selfishly incredibly stressed about that. Like I wanted to be in Tokyo and, and racing and that was obviously a huge priority for me, but we don't see people with disabilities on our screen. And if we didn't have the Paralympics go ahead, it'd be eight years before we saw disability sport again. And we know the impact sport has on communities and we're just excluding 20% of our communities by not having the Paralympics. That's an incredible loss to not just the 20%, but the 80% of our community that don't get to experience the entire potential, the other 20%. So I think all of us do carry that responsibility with us when we're the green and gold on the Paralympic team. And I love how seriously I think we all try and do that and the authenticity that every athlete really does bring to that. Well said. And I think also it's like, you know, it's our holy grail. So basketballs at the Olympics might have the NBA or whatever it is. And look, you and I are a bit different and I know that. Like I've got Grand Slams and you've got World Athletic Championships that gets coverage. So, but for a lot of Paralympic athletes, this is it. You know what I mean? So that's why we all get up for it to represent ourselves and how much we appreciate the opportunity. The Paralympics is a beacon for generational social change as well. It is actually breaking down barriers for people that might not know anybody with a disability to put on the TV and be like, oh my God, look at these people with a disability achieving with purpose, doing things that they probably didn't think that was possible for them to do. I will also like to give a shout out to people with a disability who aren't athletes as well, who might hate the Paralympics. (laughs) We have a bowl of uncomfortable question coming up based purely off that. I'll save it. I'll save it. Mm. All right. You're a smart yeah, man, I'm I guess. So, okay. Well, wait. I'll, I don't want to go too early on that. I'll yeah. wait for that. Um, but I think the opportunity to, I guess, impact that social change is probably even more important than the sport itself. And the example I'll give is this. We were too young to probably to fully understand this, Mads, but we went to Beijing where if you had a disability, you were ostracized, locked up inside, like if you were from China with a disability, you know, it was really tough. And they had the Paralympic Games and they were a bit like, oh, we would just like to have the Olympics, who cares about the Paralympics? But they had made a real effort and that actually changed, I heard, the culture for how people with a disability then integrated into community. London Paralympics was a juggernaut. It changed the way people from the UK integrated into the community. They got jobs, you know, not as much as they could have, but they got job opportunities. All people with disabilities, they went on dates, they started traveling, they started doing the things they might not have done before. So it's a powerful medium for that. And I think, I don't feel the, we don't feel the pressure of that, but I think we feel the responsibility in a good way. Absolutely. I think sport has this ability to change the way we view someone's identity. I think if you saw a person with a disability, you were drawn to see the disability. When you see athletes, which we're so familiar with and can empathize with as athletes, it's hard to just see disability at that point. You have to see sport. You have to see the athleticism. You have to see all of like the entire spectrum of emotion that you watch someone go through at a Paralympic Games. And, And you can't get away from that. And it forces us to see people with disabilities as entire people. And I know that that bar is on the floor, what I just said, pointing that that is where it is. But but it does. And it forces you to see the 
the humanity, I, I think, in people. And we do carry that with us forward. We're not going to just apply that to athletes. It's easy for us to do for athletes because sport is such a, a huge identity. You can't escape that when, when we see it. But we've got to keep applying that moving forward. And, and sport has a space to start creating that space for us to then carry that forward through our community. You're like a powerful, proud woman of your career, but also the person that you are, which I love. Were you always like this or did you struggle? Oh, I struggled so much. I think that I struggled with working out who I was so much. I think as as a person with a disability, as a girl, that's also incredibly challenging. They're both identities that are definitely forced upon us and you're told very much where you're going to go, how you're going to be, how you have to look. And I think, you know, if we talk about the body image issue, for example, like every person struggles with this, every girl struggles with it arguably a little more you throw in disability with that and it's a losing battle it's it's impossible to make peace with that I think that growing up as a girl with a disability I there there was absolutely no way that I was no matter how much work I put in what I changed I was never gonna be able to be what I thought I had to be in order to be society's idea of what I should be and so I think when you're at a point where it's that impossible you're forced to really take a good hard look at it and I was able to do this through sport. Sport definitely helped me. I think as an athlete, you have to have this love and respect for your body or else you're going to ask it to do the most ridiculous things and back it up again the next day and hurt and then deliver the results. And if you were going to demand that from your body, you have to have that love and respect for it. That doesn't work if you're someone who is in a body that society is telling you to hate and you're buying into that narrative. So it wasn't this logical. It wasn't this black and white thoughts, but I, I did know that if I wanted to go anywhere in this sport, I was going to have to really address that part of me that resented the body that I was in. So I definitely had to do a lot of really active work to move away from that. And I don't think it needs to be that extreme for us to start having that conversation with ourselves. I think we have to have that love and respect for who we are. And, and as an athlete, you're constantly trying to improve your physical self, your body. So you want it to be better and to improve, but you can't resent it in the space that it is now. And we're always two seconds away from injury and you're going to go backwards when that happens and you can't resent your body from that space either. You have to respect that it's able to, in that injured space, you know that it's able to recover and move forward because it's done it a million times for us. So you have to have that really positive relationship with yourself. And that is in enormous contrast to how we tell people disabilities to exist in their bodies. So I had the privilege of doing that through sport. We don't all have that. And this is a challenge for every single person coming to terms with who you are. People with disabilities, it is infinitely harder. And if I could do one thing with my sporting platform, and I would love to see this happen, you know, before my career is out, whether that's going to happen, doubtful, is kids with disabilities not having to grow up justifying the space that they take up, which is definitely what I did and I'm imagining it's definitely what you did. Your entire identity is wrapped up in what people think of you. You feel like you have to embrace it and lean into it rather than just letting it take up the space that it deserves, which realistically isn't that much. And this falls back into using not using person-first language. I think so often people with disabilities, any anyone from any minority will identify so strongly with that part of themselves in order to reclaim ownership of it. And if you choose to do that, 100% fine. I have so much respect for that. But if you're choosing to do it because you feel like that's the only way to reclaim your identity, then that's a result of a much bigger problem. 
And if we can use our platforms that sport affords us to change that so that kids with disabilities are growing up in a world where they don't have to justify the space that they take up, where they don't have to make it to a Paralympic stage to learn they actually do value their body and themselves, that's huge. And that's what I definitely want to see change. Jeez. Hey, can we get that up? Clip that one up for social. I was going to say, <laughs> clip it. Unbelievable. That was amazing. Well said, Madison. Well said. Yeah, really. As you guys head over for your next games, uh, I, I'm not, I hope I'm okay in asking you this, Matt, but, uh, you know, you had uh, silver, you've had bronze, but you are oh, yet he's to hit he's going the there. gold he's mark. There. Now, oh, I don't think it's there. right to set standards on coloured medals, but do you set that standard for yourself? Look, <laughs> there are definitely very big goals going into these games. I think, you know, it, it's frustrating. I've managed to do it at World Championships either side of Rio. I haven't. I went into to Rio as as World Champion the eight hundred, um, and was not able to get the job done in Rio, and that definitely hurts a little bit. That race that I was in that eight hundred. Um, it was one in a world record time, admittedly, and I was second. It still hurts <laughs> to think about. So I think about that a lot, and I think there's <clears throat> definitely a lot of added pressure. I feel like I have uh, the margin for error that I'm allowing myself is definitely smaller these games than it has been any other time. Very Switzerland, but I like it. <laughs> My other right. question leading off that is um, I watched an interview where you uh, said that, you know, basically you need – to get on podiums to pay your rent in Sydney. Definitely does. And like Dylan, you were saying earlier, I think we're lucky we have other stuff going on. The marathon circuit is a professional circuit, which I'm also on. So I have a few more opportunities than others. Um, that hasn't always been the case. I obviously haven't always raced marathons and that's really the only professional avenue that there is in military racing. And I think, not every sport even has that. Water racing has it. Tennis has it. Basketball has a pro league in, in Italy. But that, that isn't the case for everyone. And if you're shorter distances, if you're just racing on the track, that isn't there. So, yes, like financial security hinges on results and it all comes down to what you can do in that week. And injury, mental state, anything does not come into consideration. It's, it's all results-based, which definitely adds a layer of pressure. But, yeah, your financial security is definitely tied into results. So if you come between one and four in the world, Gus, you get a certain amount of funding off the government. Five to eight in the world, you get another block. Nine to 12, you get another block. Oh. If you're outside of that, you get nothing. I had no idea. So it's like actually proper results-driven. So your whole program, like just say the wheelchair basketball team becomes fourth or fifth, that's the difference between hundreds of thousands of dollars. Because think about it, the government's got to fund all the sports mm -hmm. and they want to fund the sports that are doing well. It's how it works. It's crazy, isn't it? When you think, no one would know that. I no. remember being in Rio and my 800 was the last event on the program and we'd won a medal in the relay, but the relay funding is lower. And my 800 was last and I had not medaled in an individual event. I just moved to Sydney the year before and I remember being at the track after heat was in the morning, final was in the evening. We spent all day there because the transport was so unreliable, we couldn't get back. So I had like five hours, just me and my thoughts for the final. And I remember thinking like so much hinges on this race. If I don't make it onto the podium, I'm actually in very serious trouble. So yeah. A lot rests on it. I read Olympians get 20 grand a medal. Did you read that? I also read that too. I was like, what? We don't get, we don't get anything. No. <laughs> mm, 
Well, yeah, if you're I in the Philippines and you win gold medal, you get a house and four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Singapore, you get a million bucks. Yeah, I think about this a lot because my dad is Singaporean. What are you doing here? <laughs> get over there! Get over there! Uh. Um, I have a question for you both that's come through. It's not that bowl of uncomfortable question. We'll get to that. Um, this is a question that came through from a lady named Ash Clues. Uh, and it's a question about the Paralympics and how she wants to best represent it as a teacher. Here we go. Um, hi, Mads. Hi, Dylan. I run a childcare centre, and with the Olympics and Paralympics coming up, we're very excited to celebrate. But I have a question for you guys. We'd love to advocate for inclusion and teach children about disabilities and what the Paralympics are. Do you have any suggestions on how to do this appropriately? Children are one to five years old. We want to be fair and inclusive, but also want them to be easy to understand. For example, the Olympics will run different events for the children to engage in, like long jump, shot put, gymnastics, etc. For teaching about Paralympics, could we get the children to sit on their chairs and say do volleyball or close their eyes and try and do golf, for example, or is this inappropriate? Would love to hear your thoughts. No, that's the best. You want to integrate it in as many ways as possible, starting as young as possible. And I think that disability in sport is just the entry-level requirement, right? Like, some of our, our vision-impaired guys competing in the most vision-impaired class, you do have to compete with the blindfold on because it is, like, you may not necessarily be at that point, but that's what the class demands of you. So, no, it's not inappropriate at all. It's what is a requirement for the sport. And if we're talking equipment, for example, like, we need to move away from the idea that thinking a racing chair is a piece of mobility equipment, not a piece of sporting equipment. So there is nothing weird or, or inappropriate or anything about anyone with a disability jumping in the race chair in a sports chair in, in participating in any kind of Paralympics. I love it. I encourage it so much. I think one of the best things that we get to see is when we have kids with disabilities trying out water racing for the first time and their, their siblings, their friends are getting involved as well. That's, that's what we want. And we can't integrate sport the other way around. We can't have kids with disabilities competing equally in an able-bodied sport. It's not it's a physical possibility. We can do it the other way around. And we need to kind of, I guess, remove this idea that that's a bad or inappropriate thing, that disability is some taboo that has to say weird and protected over here. We want that access for every single person. And the playing field can't exist at able-bodied. It has to exist elsewhere. So we need to create that. So, yes, my answer to that is get everyone involved, whatever it's going to take. Yep, and if there's other teachers listening and saying, kids keep asking me my class about disability, don't shy away from talking about it or yell at them for talking about it because it's important that we do talk about it and they are kids and then because we normalise it. Also very impressive that that teacher said she's going to ask her grade ones to do blind golf. Hmm. How are we doing blind golf? That's going to be pretty hard. That's got to be one of the hardest of all. The, I don't even know if that exists. That's got to be tough. That's going to be a tough one. That would be a very blind difficult golf. sport. Yeah. Um, I've got three quick questions, three semi-rapid fire, but you can go into them if you want. One, rap fight. What's your marathon PB? 139. Something. <laughs> One hour 39. Gus, what's yours? Uh, it took me four, nearly five hours to run that 27 Ks. I didn't even make I it. Did a- I did a half marathon in 137. So you do a full marathon at the time I do a half. That is, I love that. Um, secondly, the Maddie, uh, Madison Di Rosario Barbie doll. Tell me how that came about. Mm. And what did that mean to you to see an actual, the number one toy in the world after you? I, I shared it on my social. I thought it was one of the coolest things. She lives on my bookshelf um, and it has not gotten less weird to see it every day. 
that is to this day the highest compliment I've ever been paid. Um, I think to have a brand like Barbie pick a woman with disability to represent sport in Australia is significant just on its own. That's huge. Having been, knowing the women in sport in, in Australia and knowing the options that were available, that is what makes it such an enormous compliment that I cannot wrap my head around. But I, I think one of the huge parts that came of it was just, I think, alignment of values. I think Barbie as a brand has had such a history. And troubled think, past? Can we say troubled past? Can we say troubled past? Okay. Um, and I think the direction they're going in with really authentic diversity is huge. And not just in, in the toys they're producing being, you know, every, every girl is able to see themselves in a doll. That's enormous. Every girl with a disability's friend are able to see their friend as a doll. That's also enormous. On top of that, outside of just product, Barbie has so many um, structures in place to show girls they can do and be anything and everything they want to be, and that's what the Shiro campaign is a part of. Another is basically like, I don't know the best way to describe it, so I might not do this justice, an enormous like job festival pitched at children. So it's in LA, got cancelled um, last year because of COVID. But basically the idea was to bring in as many incredible powerful women from every possible career path. So from the sciences to the sport to the arts to, to everything, I think Alex Morgan was one of the ones that was meant to come in for it, for girls at no cost to the girls or their families to come in and see that firsthand and be exposed to the potential that is there because we lose sight of what we're able to do so young. Like one of the studies conducted basically had boys and girls under I think the age of five being told to draw a scientist. So all the girls drew girl scientists and the boys drew boy scientists. They drew themselves as a scientist. And after I think the age of five, everyone in that room, every child drew a boy scientist at some point, super young at around five, that's now a boy job. And so even though we might change our mind in that as we get older, it's still years of conditioning to believe that our potential is capped. So I think getting to align with a brand that is actively trying to change that from such a young age at the root of the problem, that was a huge privilege. It is time, Madison Di Rosario, to get into the bowl of uncomfortable. This is where somebody sends us a message, a question that they wouldn't feel comfortable to say to you in person, but they can do it anonymously through our socials. I am disabled and I hate the Paralympics. It sets a standard 99% of people with disability will never or don't want to reach. I'm in a senior position at my accounting firm. I've worked my heart out to get here, yet I still get asked if I play sport or if I ever wanted to make the Paralympics. Do you feel part of the responsibility for the problem we face daily because you play sport? I do not feel part of the problem, no, but I do recognise where this person is coming from. I think that our idea of disability has changed kind of what I said earlier, where we want to put an umbrella thing over all disability. And it's changed that we decide is disability. It's kind of come from not being able to participate in, in society or, or employment or be valued members of community. And it's taken this massive jump to elite sport and it's missed everything in the middle. And the reality is, obviously, disability exists on a spectrum. What we're now doing with disability is demanding excellence in order to be accepted and sport does play a role in that because what we see of disability like I think we both are fully aware is mostly sport it's our athletes that we do see with the brightest spotlight being shone on them 
And I do agree that's a problem. I want kids with disabilities to see Paralympic sport and not think, oh, I can be an athlete. It's this is a bunch of people doing anything and everything they want to do. They're completely reclaiming their identity and doing anything that they choose to do. And that's going to look so different for every single person. And I think we need to embrace that a lot more than we do. And I agree. We definitely have changed our idea of disability. It's evolving in a really positive direction, but it's probably missed quite a few really important steps. 100%. And that person has every right to be a bit peed off about it. Imagine not playing sport and someone from work coming and go, oh, so have you tried any Paralympics or you tried sports? Like, I don't like sport. And that's something that I sometimes do feel bad about. And um, I want there to be hundreds of thousands of names of people with disability that people know, not just a select few. And people, you know, people write tweets to us saying, oh, you flogs always get in the limelight. Like, like we want that, you know, we don't want that. We want to share that. We want more people with disability to get out there because, you know, not everyone has the opportunity to be a Paralympian or play sport, but they have an opportunity to their own career but they aren't getting those opportunities in their own career because they're not provided. So it's up to all of us to keep smashing that glass ceiling so people can get out there. But I'll take on that hate because that's fair enough. Hopefully they watch in Tokyo <laughs> and we change them and we change their mm-hmm. mind. What do you reckon? Hey, give us a chance. We're nice. I uh, promise. Madison, good luck across all of your events. Uh, we'll be watching and we'll be sharing it on our socials, your journey. And speaking of socials, Madison dot, how many underscores? Is it three underscores? Oh, Oh, yeah, I can't have? change it because it's a verified account. Hey, Madison that, dot that was underscore, 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 underscore. Oh, you then? Oh, I can't change my handle. Well, that's so hard. Looking forward to following your journey and good luck. Thank you. We're only having the chance to highlight the stories of a couple of Paralympians, but there are hundreds out there, not only from Australia, but all around the world. So make sure you check them out, give them a little follow and give them that support. Until the next episode, we'll catch you then. See you then. Listenable was presented by Dylan Orcott and Angus O'Loughlin. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Produced by Beth Gibson. We also hire people with disability, including Stephen Tower, who does our captions for YouTube. And our awesome theme song is made by Eliza Hull. Listener.